Good morning. Glad to see everyone who is here this morning. I want to thank the, the congregation. I want to thank the elders for allowing me to stand here this morning to occupy this sacred desk to talk about the things that are found in the scriptures, to study the words of our God, to study the words of Jesus, and to look at what he commands of us. I hope as you gather here today as brothers and sisters in Christ that you're encouraged by the presence of your brothers and sisters. That you realize how important it is for you to be here, that you are also sharing your very present shares in uplifting and edifying those around you. I hope also while you're here that you're able to reflect upon your week and say that you have had a, a good week, a productive week in your careers, in your school, maybe in recreation activity. But I also hope when you reflect upon your week that you're able to see that you've been uh, spending time in God's Word. That you have prayed unto Him. That you have communed with Him. That you have thought about Him and sought opportunity to spread His Word and to show a little kindness in your community. As Christians, we are commanded to be light to the world and we must strive to do that. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn over to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. This will be the text of our consideration this morning. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. <clears throat> I would encourage you to keep your Bible open to this text as it would be a, it's usually a custom of mine to look at this text, to break it apart, and hopefully find some application of it. But the text reads in verse 25, and there, went great, and there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto him, this is Jesus, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sister, yea, and his own life also, he cannot, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it? Lest happily after he hath laid the foundation is not able to finish it all, uh, finish it, all that beheld him began to mock him, excuse me, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador and desire conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 34. Salt is good, but the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghole, but men cast it out. He that hath ear to hear, let him hear. Jesus, in this passage of Luke chapter 14, he is headed towards Jerusalem, is what we're told in the context. He's headed towards Jerusalem to observe the Jewish festival known as the Passover. Of course, you and I know that this would be the last week 
of Jesus' life as He enters Jerusalem. You and I know that He is going to Jerusalem to die upon the crucifixion. He is going to Jerusalem to die upon that cross to be the atonement for the sins of man. As Jesus is on this road, He is fully aware that this is a one-way journey for Him. He is fully aware that He is going to the cross and He is going to die for man. He is going to be a sacrifice for man. He is going to fulfill all the prophecies that were spoken of Him in time past. He is going to bring man back into a relationship and a proper relationship with our Heavenly Father. In this text it tells us as He is heading to Jerusalem, a multitude is following Him. They're behind Him. It was a custom in that day that those who traveled a long distance would do so in large crowds. They did this for protection against robbers, against wild beasts, or other things. However, it seems that Luke pins this down not in reference to that particular custom, but rather that these individuals were following, intentionally following Jesus. Now there's a variety of reasons they may have come out to see Jesus. Some may have come out to see Him because they have heard about the miracles He has performed and they wish to see a miracle that He has performed in time past or the ones they've heard about. Some may have come out to seek some form of guidance from Him, hearing that He is a great spiritual teacher. And some may have come out wanting to be a true disciple of His. Wanting to commit their life to Him. We are not told in this passage of the location that the speech had occurred. All the context we have is that he is headed towards Jerusalem and people are following him. Now the words that proceed and that comes out of the mouth of our Savior here are problematic. They are hard, blunt saying what Jesus says here. Three times he tells us in this text, you cannot be my disciple if you're not willing to make the, the commitment. If you're not willing to meet the degree that he speaks of in this text. Now they are not problematic. They are not a hard saying because they're strange in comparison to Jewish tradition. No, the demands that Jesus speaks here is also found in Jewish scriptures. They are not problematic in the sense that he is rebuking the audience. No, that is not happening here. Rather, they are hard saying because they are difficult to live by. They are challenging. They are thought-provoking. What we read here in Luke chapter 14, the latter part of this chapter, are words that demand something out of us. That's why they're a hard saying. These passages are probably one of the most difficult passages to bring into our life. They are very hard to conduct ourselves by. But what Jesus does here, when he looks at this crowd that is standing before him, he sees a variety of different people, and he makes a distinction in this speech. He makes a difference between those who are an occasional follower, an occasional, conventional follower of Jesus, versus someone who is a genuine, radical disciple of his. He makes that distinction here in this text. See, it is possible for one to be a follower of Jesus without being a radical disciple or a true disciple of Him. But that does not mean they reap the same reward as a true disciple. 
To illustrate this point, a man comes to a college professor and says, John Doe says he was a student of yours, and the professor says he has attended my lectures, he has attended my class, but I've never known him. I, he has never taken the things that I've taught him and applied it to his academic career. This is true when we come to Christ. There are many individuals who like him. They like his ideas. They like his ethics. They like his moral teachings. But they never go to the next step and apply those things. And they never go to the step of making him Lord of their lives. King of their lives. These individuals who take on the name to be a Christian or occasional followers of Jesus, they will be a follower for him in the conventional sense, in the easy comfort sense. This distinction sadly has always been true in true Christianity or in the Christendom, is that there has always been more individuals, detached followers of Christ, undedicated followers of Christ, people who wish to follow at a distant and very few true disciples of Jesus who meets the requirement spoken here in Luke 14 who will follow what Jesus says here there are too many individuals who set a minimum requirement in their service to God see in their mind they have created a ceiling of how far they will serve God and they will not go past that ceiling they will not go beyond that ceiling. Once they meet that, they retire for the month, they're good. They will be for Jesus when he is popular in the culture. They will agree with most of his sayings. They will agree with his morals and his doctrine. But anything that he demands of them that may shake the boat, so to speak, they jump overboard, they abandon ship. And anything that is required more of them they will pull out their little excuse book and see which one they can use this time to get them off the hook. We see many Christians do this. I heard a song one time regarding this excuses. It goes, excuses, excuses, you hear them every day. How the devil will supply them at the church you stay away. When people come to know the Lord, the devil always loses, but to keep those folks away from church, he offers them excuses. This is one of the most devastating handicaps the church has ever faced, is detached followers of Jesus Christ, and very few and rare true disciples, genuine disciples. Jesus here talks about those types of people, and he tells us that there is a difference in merely following him and being a student of his. The difference is the transition that is spoken of here and is counting up the costs and then paying that price. That's the transition from being an occasional follower of Jesus to a radical disciple of his. As you count up the cost that is expressed here and then you pay the price. You pay the price, what he's demanding here. See, Jesus does not want us to enter into a relationship with him doubtful. He does not want us to enter a relationship with him uncertain and unsure about this commitment that we're making with him. It is necessary that those who want to be a disciple of his, that they count up the cost and they absolutely know what is involved in being his disciple and what that involvement looks like. 
See, to be a true disciple of Jesus, one must be dedicated to him based upon a rational, reasonable commitment. That they have utilized their intellectual facilities and they have seen the cost, they have counted the cost personally in their life, and they are willing to pay it. Our commitment to Christ should not be based upon artificial emotionalism. This is the point the parables drive home. In each of the scenarios that Jesus presents before his audience, we see an individual in a position of power who did not count up the cost, and because of that, they are seen as fools by their peers. These parables illustrate that there is no place for unreasoning, sentimental enthusiasm in a disciple of Christ. Before one, before one ever commits to be a disciple of Christ, they must count up the cost. They must determine themselves what they are willing to pay uh, and the demands that Jesus speaks here, and they need to pay that price. We must, come, we must not come to Christ blindly, blindly and without thought. We must think about this decision that we're making is what Jesus presents here in Luke 14. W. Clarkson, in the pulpit commentary, paraphrased the words of Jesus in this manner. I found fitting to note this. It says, I say this because it is much better you should know what you are doing by following me than you should enter upon a course which you will find yourself obliged to abandon than that you should undertake a duty to which you will find yourself unequal. All wise people, before they definitely commit themselves to any policy, carefully consider whether they can carry it through. Every wise builder calculates the cost before he begins to build. Every wise king esteems his military strength before he declares war. So do you consider whether you are prepared to make a full surrender of your will to my will, of your life to my service? Before you attach yourself to my side, for whoever is not able to forsake all that he hath at my bidding cannot be my disciple. Ponder the matter, therefore, weigh everything before you act. Count the cost. Decide deliberately and with a full understanding of what it is you are doing. What is clearly perceived in this passage that we need to consider the cost of being a true disciple of Jesus. We need to examine what Christ is asking out of his true disciples. Out of the radical disciples that he wishes to have. And when we have done that, let us not cover the severity and the degree that is demanded in this passage. Too many times I have seen that done in, these, in modern commentaries. They wish to soften what is being expressed in Luke chapter 14. Let us not do that, but rather for the sake of our soul, let us be willing to pay the cost that is expressed here. So with that understood, that Jesus wants us to pause before we become his disciple he wants us to count up the costs. Let us now talk about what that cost is that Jesus expressed in this text. The very first thing he says in verse 26, he says this, If any man comes to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sister, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I want you to notice as we go throughout this text to continue to look at that phrase, cannot be my disciple. It's an absolute. He cannot be my disciple if one is not willing to pay this. He cannot. So the first commitment or first cost here is that a man 
is to hate his father, his mother, his wife, children, brethren, and yea, his own life. It's the first cause that is described here. This passage and some like this have been a very big problem to those who are novice Bible students. Because in their mind, they see a contradiction with this particular text. Because they, they are fully aware that the Bible speaks uh, tremendously about the love of the family. Tremendously about the sovereign unit of the family and upholding that family unit. Oh, so when they have that particular notion pressed in their mind that the Bible wants us to love our family and they come across this particular passage, they're confused. They see... They think there's a contradiction that is presented here. So they see an inconsistency and a lack of harmony. However, the Greek word for hatred, missio, in this text refers to choice and priority. Choice and priority. It refers to the idea of loving less, not the idea that we commonly attach to hatred, of loathing, detest, and to scorn. Now, sometimes this is what the word hatred means, but the context demands that. Matter of fact, if we take this particular passage here in Luke 14, verse 26, and compare it to its parallel in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, we see what Jesus is expressing in the text. He says, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Of me, G Clearly, Jesus here in this text is talking about priority. Priority. The implications of Jesus' teaching here is that the love that we would and should have for Him should be so great, so awesome, so overwhelming, that our dearest relationships that we have look like they're in hatred, is what Jesus is expressing here. That our love for Him needs to be so superior that when it's compared to our dearest relationships, it looks like we hate them. In all reality, we don't hate them, but our love needs to surpass that. Our love for Christ needs to surpass those things. See, Jesus used this word in a comparative sense, the word hatred. If we have to make a choice between our family, your dearest relationship your wife, your husband, your children, if you have to make a choice between them and Christ, to be a true disciple of His, He says, you must choose me. You must choose Christ. Do you see the difficulty of this passage now? Why it's problematic? Now, because Christ insists that we must put him first with the family as the backdrop to this passage, it shows the seriousness of this injunction, of this imperative. This is the cost that if we wish to be a disciple of Jesus, we must be prepared to pay. And notice that in choosing him, we are choosing him over all of our dearest relationships. That in the same text, it tells us that we are choosing him over our very own life. We must choose Christ. He must come first in all things. His, his commands must take priority in our life. He is to sit on the throne of our hearts. 
and we are not to allow any rivals in that position. That is Christ's place, and only Christ is to sit there. He is number one in our life. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, a passage you are very familiar with, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This passage has always been one of great interest to mine, to me. Because I find it very interesting that Jesus here does not give us a list of priorities. He doesn't tell us what comes second, because frankly, Jesus doesn't care what comes second. What he cares is what comes first in, his, in your life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is to be on top of the list of everything. Is that we are to choose him. We must learn to obey God rather than our closest relatives. We must learn to say no to anything and to everything that would distract us from offering a complete service to God and a complete service to Christ. And in this surrender to Him, we move from being a, a Christian who offers service when it's convenient or in offering a degree of love to God. We move from that to a complete surrender, moving all of our love towards Him. And it is becoming what Paul speaks in Romans 12 of that living sacrifice. He tells us that we ought to do that in Romans 12. Beseek you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. A living sacrifice being expressed here. See, Paul tells us that our very being, our very vessel, our very instruments, and everything that is part of that needs to be a living sacrifice to God. Now, when he uses this phrase, he's using it in comparison to the sacrifices that were found in Levitical law. When an animal was selected, consecrated, and devoted to God in a sacrifice, when that animal was slaughtered, it, it ceased from being any value to God anymore. It was offered once. The Bible tells us we ought to be a living sacrifice, that we don't just offer a one-time service or when it's convenient or when we like to. Rather, our life is now to be a living sacrifice to God. We'll talk about what this means in a second, to be a living sacrifice to God. Our entire being needs to be offered to God. Every aspect of our life needs to be devoted and disposed to God. Everything. You don't get, get to keep one part of it. Everything is now God's. And as Paul says, the fulfillment of this is a, is a fulfillment of our spiritual worship. It's our religious duty. It's our reasonable service to him. This is true Christianity, not a life of convenience or what best suits us. But rather, it's a life of sacrifice. It is a life of renouncing those things that are precious to us and that distract us from fully serving our God. The idea of renunciation and self-renunciation is re-emphasized in verse 33 of Luke chapter 14 where it says forsaketh. The word forsaketh in the Greek means to part from. It means to withdraw from. It means to bid well to. There are some that believe that in this passage that Jesus is setting up another qualification of a true disciple. And that qualification, some will say, is that we need to get rid of or say farewell to all of our earthly possessions as being expressed here in verse 33. However, our earthly possessions and goods is not always um, restricted to material things. 
We have always done that. Our earthly goods, we have restricted to uh, material things. And we have also, what we have done is we say material things are the things that get us in the way of God. Not necessarily family, but the material things. However, when we look at this text, there are other things that can be referring to material things, like relationship, like that taught in verse 26. See, both verse 26 and verse 33 of Luke 14, Jesus tells us to be a true disciple of him. We must bid farewell to everything and to everyone who distracts us from serving God. We must not allow them or it to get in the way of serving God. Now I beg with you, do not misunderstand the words of Jesus here or the implications I'm trying to draw out of this passage. In this passage, to renounce what we have does not mean that we forsake our relationships with our friends and our families and become isolated. It does not mean that we throw away the possessions that God has given to us for us to be stewards of. These passages are not teaching that we go to the extreme of living like a, a hobbit, so to speak, without no possessions, with it, um, just only a very few little things, nor is it telling us that we go into a monastery lifestyle of solitude and isolation. For to do those things, to take this passage to that extreme, is to violate the passage of the Great Commission, benevolence, and evangel evangelizing. What Jesus is trying to get across is that not one thing, whether it be our possessions, our homes, our cars, our jobs, our belongings, or our relationships, our spouses, our children, our friends, our buddies, or those things combined, are those things to take priority over God. That's what Jesus is trying to get across here. Those things should not take priority. But if they do, And as you reflect upon your life, and you may think that there are some things that get in your way of serving God, maybe it's some relationship or some possession. If they do, here's what the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, we renounce them. We forsake it. We bid them farewell. And any person, as the text tells us in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, not willing to pay this price, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. This is the first cost that Jesus announced to those who wish to follow him in Luke chapter 14. is putting him first, putting God first, his will, his interest, priority number one in our life. The second cost that Jesus tells his audience is found in verse 27. I do not have that on the screen. It says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There, are, there have been some time now in the religious community, particularly by some commentaries, to soften the meaning of this particular passage. See, the softened notion about this idea of taking up the cross, they believe that Jesus is telling us that we need to be patient to the misfortunes of life. 
You may find this particular notion a lot in devotional literature, that to take up the cross is referring to some more misfortunate event, some bad circumstances, some bad situation, that that's your cross and you've got to bear it and just deal with it. It's not what Jesus means here in this text. It's not what he is talking about here. What is suggested and applied by the word bear his own cross is what it meant to the audience when they heard these words in Luke chapter 14. When we read this, our minds automatically think about the crucifixion of Christ. We think about the cross of Christ. Because you and I know the end of the story, or the climax of the story, so to speak. However, the audience of Jesus in this passage are unaware of the working of Christ. They're unaware completely of the working of Christ. Matter of fact, we're told in Matthew chapter 16, I do not have that up there as well, Matthew chapter 16, There's a slide that's missing. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 20 to 21, we're told in that particular passage that the, the inner circle of the disciples, they were to keep those things private to themselves. They were not to talk about the working of Christ or necessarily Him going to the cross. What the cross and the bearing of the cross meant to the audience that Jesus speaks to is death. For the cross serves only one person, or only one reason, and that is to kill the person who hung upon it. In the times of Christ, when a man was given a cross by a band of Roman soldiers, it was very clear that that man was on a one-way journey that leaded in his death. Because the cross represents certain death to the audience, this is what it represents to us Christians as we read this text. What Christ is telling us here that if you wish to be a true disciple of His, you must die. You must die. Now, of course, not literally, but rather the death of our passions, death of our will, our intent, our desires, our wants, our wishes, our identity. It is a killing of the old man, the old manner, and the sinful man, as what Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 6. Now, bearing the cross is not just giving up sin, and it's not just putting the rule of sin to death in our life, of dying to sin, but it's also a full surrender. Sometimes we lose this idea in Romans chapter 6. It is a surrendering of our supposed rights, of our supposed rule, of our supposed way to God and to Christ. This surrender is likened to a war in which two nations are combating each other and one nation has risen the white flag of surrender. In doing so, that surrender nation has invited and yielded to the rule of the superior nation. This is a type of surrender that is spoken of in the Bible because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter 2 that we at one time were fighting against God. We were enemies to Him. We were hostile to Him. But then we realize something. Of course, the gospel has been made available to us, but we realize something that if we continue in this fight, it will only end in our destruction. It will end in our ruin. 
So we have bent the knee. We have yielded to God and have invited Him as a superior ruler to rule our life. That's what we have done when we have died to our old self. We have not only killed the enslavement and the reign of sin, but we have said, now God, you are in charge. You are the King. You are the Lord of me. It is as Thomas said, the God of me and the Lord of me. Our surrender is removing us and sin from the captain's seat of our vessel and it's putting Christ where he belongs. This very aspect of yielding is also involved in bearing the cross. In Philippians 3, Paul says this, But what things were gained to me, those I kind of lost for Christ. Of course, above this passage, Paul talks about all the great things that he had accomplished as a Jewish man. He says, I count them as lost. He says, yet doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the ecstasy of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffer the loss of all things. He says, I regard it all gone, and do count them but dung, rubbish, trash, that I may win Christ. He has bid them farewell, so that he may win Christ. What this passage here in Philippians Three verse seven and eight is talking about is making very clear that we make a complete dedication to him. Now this very aspect of yielding is also involved in bearing the cross in Galatians two verse twenty. We're told about that. What that passage in Galatians two verse twenty teaches us that everything that we possess and who we are now belongs to Christ. Your life is no longer your life. It is now His life. Your time is no longer your time. It is now His time. Your possessions are no longer your possession. It is now His possessions. Your future is no longer your future. It is now His future. Your treasure is no longer your treasure. It is now His treasure. And you have to transfer all that you are and all that you have to all that He is. It is what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ. So then when Jesus tells the audience that they must bear their own cross, this is what is being implied. First, the death of ourself, and then the yielding to our God. If we are unwilling to do this, if we do not count, if we do not want to kill our desires, our passions and sins, and allow God to direct our life, Jesus says in the text that we cannot be his disciple. So then this is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. First, we must put him and his interests as priority in our life. Everything else must, out of necessity, come second. Then the second cost is we must take up the cross and follow Christ. And that, of course, signifies that we put to death our old self. And we allow now Christ to be the king of our life. Now, as we come to the close of Jesus' talk here, in verse 28 and 32, Jesus continues and presents two parables to further impress the point of counting the cost to his audience. In verse 33, he reemphasized what he had taught in verse 26. But notice the end, verse 34 and 35.
I apologize about the PowerPoint. My passages are all mixed up. Verse 34 and 35. It says this, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghole, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. This portion of the text, if you look at Luke chapter 14 and kind of the flow of the text, this has perplexed and confused and puzzled many individuals as to why this is mentioned. Matter of fact, some have been so confused about why this is mentioned that they have advocated that this should not be here. That this should not be in the text. That someone has added this much later on. However, they're wrong about this because this is a fitting close to the sermon of Jesus here. Because if we do not count up the cost and are willing to pay that cost, we are like the salt that is described here that has lost its flavor, that has lost its season. See, any literal salt that is tasteless or has lost power to preserve it as it was used in ancient time, it is worthless. It's not fit for anything. It has no value, not even for the manure pile. This is what is implied, that we are like that tasteless salt if we do not pay that price that is spoken of here in Luke 14. That we're no use. That we're no use. That we're not good to anyone in the church. That we're not good to God. That we're not good to Christ. That we're not good to the cause. That we're not good for the institution that Christ had established. That's what Jesus is expressing here. This is so because these individuals that Jesus speaks of have not yet come to a full and a total surrender of their life to Jesus Christ. They have not put Christ as number one in their life. They have not killed their old self. And they have not given rule to Christ. Thus, there are the tasteless salt described here. And they are to be thrown away. Now the words of Jesus here in this passage are very eye-opening. Very eye-opening. Very sobering. And something that requires our strictest attention and something that we ought not to degrade or belittle. Jesus wants his audience as well as us to take these words and he wants us to ponder them. He wants us to ask ourselves, can we afford the cost? Can we do this? And the reason he wants us to count up the cost is he discourage any half-hearted enlistment into his kingdom. Jesus will not want reckless, careless, spur-of-the-moment enrollment. He wants individuals who said they will make him Lord of their life and that they will submit to his rule, his will, and his word. It is as that old hymn goes, All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. Let us not come sing this song, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, accept my life. Accept my possessions, my passions, my desires, my sins, my reign, my wants, my wishes. All to Jesus I surrender, accept a few things. This all that we surrender to him is all in the absolute sense, in the absolute degree, and to the absolute certainty. It is all in all. With that said, 
I want to close with a few questions when we look at this text. Ask yourself, have I come to a place in my life of total surrender and commitment to Christ? Have I made him and his interests priority number one in my life? Is he priority number one? Or does something else take priority? Have I put to death my old self, my old manner, my old conduct, and removed myself from the hell of my vessel and placed Christ there? And have I yielded my life and will to the Lordship of him who died for me on that cross? Have you done these things? My friends, the doors of heaven are open wide. Of course, there will be a day when it closes, but the doors right now are open wide. All who seek and come to Christ and become the true disciple that Jesus wants, that is described here in Luke chapter 14, will make heaven their home one day. So let us take the step of faith and obedience and come to him. Let us count up the cost that is described here in Luke 14 and pay that. But I must tell you, my friends, that if you come, don't play games. It is a full surrender to Christ, completely, and nothing less. Brothers and sisters, I thank you for your attention. If there is anyone here today that feels as though the words are convicting them, as you reflect upon your life, as you reflect upon these questions and realize that you have fallen short of being a radical disciple of Jesus Christ, that you have fallen short of paying that cost that is described here. I encourage you today to get your life back in line with His will and His word. Submit to Him, allow Him to be your Lord and your King, and much blessings will come upon you. If you're here today and wish to, to do that, or have the prayers or the assistance of the congregation, you're welcome to come as we stand and sing the song that has been selected.